Well, first, I do want to make a, a quick comment uh, about the uh, shooting at the Taiwanese church in uh, Laguna Miguel or Laguna Woods. I don't remember. I think it's Laguna Miguel. It's actually just down the road about a mile from, uh, from our house. Uh, and, of course, that hits close to home when we see uh, some, an act of uh, violence like this committed in a house of worship to a people that are doing nothing except trying to worship and honor their Lord. And I understand that there are theological distinctions that we have with the Presbyterian church and all those things. But for, uh, for those who truly know and love the Lord, um, we are happy to call them brothers and sisters. Uh, and I know that even today as they celebrate their first, you know, or try to celebrate and, and worship the Lord on the first uh, Lord's Day after uh, that horrific event, there is still a lot of uh, trauma. I know the, the, the pastors uh, there are sleepless and in, uh, in terror. And how can they not look with suspicion now at every single person that comes through the door that's an unfamiliar face? And uh, they are going to have to wrestle now with that balance of, of do we want people at church? Yes, we do. But how can you know every single one of them is, is safe or, or not there to do you harm? Well, unless you're God, you cannot know that. Uh, and so just, I, I want everyone here to understand, and it's, of course, maybe timely that just a few weeks ago, we had our own security and response team come up and share with you some of the things that we do. We do, in fact, have a response and security team that we started a, a few years ago. And uh, we are doing everything we can in at least our own earthly um, efforts to keep the congregation safe, um, and yet also to welcome those who need to, to be in church, especially those who are hurt and broken. Um, and so we probably, one of the best things we can do, not probably, but one of the best things we can do is to pray, is to pray that the Lord uh, would keep us and secure us, uh, to pray that our hope is ultimately in the Lord and that this life, as fragile as it is um, and precious as it is, is not all that there is and uh, to set our hearts on heaven and our eternal home, uh, even as we would hope that um, no one uh, would have to suffer uh, that kind of uh, violence and injustice. Um, we'll have more words coming from our uh, security and response team in the weeks to come. And that might be a little bit more of a regular thing, just because we want people to know their faces. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that they would encourage each one of you to do is that it is important to in, engage with and talk to people here. If you see any visitors or, or newcomers, to, to speak with them and let them know that they are welcome. And if you just find that there seems to be something a little bit um, peculiar or off, you feel free to come talk to me. I deal with that all the time. Um, really, I do. And uh, you, 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 don't, you don't have to feel bad if something feels off. And uh, we, our security team, um, they would love to also assist in that. So if uh, you start to recognize who they are, if you see something peculiar, you can go talk to them and say, you know, I was talking to this person, and they just, they were saying a few things that were a little bit concerning. Um, and that's okay. They're, they, they're understanding. They're not going to just immediately try to kick them out or anything like that. Um, they, they know how to deal with those situations. So all that to say, we do want to trust the Lord, even as that never negates our own responsibilities. We want to uh, give him our complete and total 
uh, trust and faith that he is in control of all things, uh, even as we seek to really try to um, keep our eyes and ears open for those who are hurting and lost and, um, you know, a lot of times perhaps to avert disaster um, just by a gentle word. So uh, if you have any more questions about that, you know, feel free to come and talk to me or Pastor Chris or Bing, and and we'd love to share with you or hear any concerns that you have. Now, we are in the book of Ephesians. I'd encourage you to turn there, and I want to start off with just a a premise here. Everything in this section, and of course you can argue that about the entire Bible, but specifically this section of the book of Ephesians— orients our thinking towards the glory of God. That everything that is happening, everything that we're going to discuss, and really we're just going to get in probably one verse today, everything is going to be about to the praise of his glory. Now, maybe it's been a long time since you were in school, um, but if you ever uh, did math homework and you worked through a problem, you got the answer, you went to the back of the book, to check the answer and realize you're wrong, you know this feeling of, well, I have the right answer here, but I did not arrive to it, so I must have done something wrong. And you go back and you got to check all of your calculations and everything because you know the answer, you know whether your process is correct, your thinking is correct or not, right? If you, if you remember that or maybe you're in the midst of that right now with school and finals and things, Well, this is how the glory of God works in this passage. It is the conclusion. It is the answer to everything. All things, really, all things are about God's glory for the praise of his glorious grace. So any answer you give about life, the meaning of life, the world, what's happening, the inevitable conclusion, the answer is somehow, some way to the praise of his glorious grace. You have the answer from the outset. So the solution to every question, every question that you have, every confusion about theology or why bad things happen, everything somehow, some way, works itself towards this conclusion to the praise of his glory. Now, that is a premise. That's not something I am going to, let's say, argue for. That's either how the universe and this creation works, or it's something else. But you see, in having that conclusion, that answer as your premise, means that how you know whether you've got the wrong thought process or not. Because if your thought process, if your theology, if you're working through some question of life, if you've been talking to your neighbor or your children about the things of God, if you come to a conclusion that is not to the praise of his glory, you've messed up somewhere. It's a natural corrective, you could say. I say that because we're going to talk about some very difficult things in the next few weeks. Today, we're going to try and tackle the Trinity. In in next week, or the next time I preach, I think it's next week, we're going to talk about predestination, free will, and those fantastic discussions about God knowing the end from the beginning and so on. We're going to talk about us as sinful humans somehow being reconciled to a holy God. Now, 
those are sometimes very hard subjects, sometimes very contentious subjects, things that theologians and Christians have argued for thousands of years. But let's just at least agree on the conclusion. All things must be to the praise of his glory. Now, let's get there. Let's get there the right way. You know, sometimes you would get the right answer, but you use the wrong, you know, the wrong formula or whatever, but you just happen to get the right answer. Well, I'll say this. That works or that happens when you have very simple math problems, but it never happens that way when the math gets more tricky. And I can guarantee you theology is more tricky than than math. So uh, I think it's a very good guiding principle that in all that we say and think about the things of God, we better come to a conclusion that God, that everything is about the glory of God. So I hope I am, I hope I am uh, um, ingraining that as best as I can, because it is the theme of these verses, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Secondly, what we see and I mentioned this last week, is you see this phrase, in Christ, in him, in Christ, over and over again. If you're listening when Bing was reading, reading it earlier, you hear it uh, six, seven, eight times, I think, in Christ, in him. So the way that we get to this glory, all things being for the glory of God, there's no way to get to that answer apart from Christ, apart from Jesus and who he is. So that has also got to be a premise that is super clear and obvious, not just in this text, but the whole Bible. That the glory of God, you cannot understand it, you cannot grasp it, you cannot even begin to talk about it without talking about Jesus Christ. And so that excludes any other um, religion and figure of any religion or, or, or history or worldview. Only in Christ can we get to that place where we get the right answer of all things are for the glory of God. There are some basic truths about existence here in this passage, even in the, in the, in the first few verses. Last week, I didn't mention verse 2, and I should have, but um, it's a typical introduction to a letter like this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, grace to you and peace. Um, that is a typical greeting of blessing, of, of well-wishing. I hope you are um, experiencing goodness and uh, serenity. But notice what's more important is that it's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And immediately after, Paul repeats it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed at its root can even just be mean happy. The idea here is that God is the source of every good thing. God is the very definition of well-being, wholeness, peace, just happiness, goodness. He, he is those things. So if you want those things, where else can you go but to God? Because he is the source of it. He is the one who created it. He is by definition good and happy and blessed. 
and really everything that follows is, is out of that. You're going to have who has blessed us, right? It's blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, and so on. And everything that happens from there to 14, arguably from, from there perhaps even to the end of chapter 3, is really about how this blessed God blessed us. And that's a tremendous thought. We'll get to it at the end of the sermon, Lord willing. But the idea that a very blessed God would go on to bless us is the very nature of existence. Not just the theme of this epistle or this section of an epistle. Really, the theme of this creation is that a very good, very holy, very blessed God would, would bless us, would even think to share that with humanity. But I am getting ahead of myself. Some basic truths about existence lay in this verse in verse 3. The first is the most obvious that there is a God. That this is a presupposition of the entire Bible that, that creation itself, existence itself, has no, no meaning, no purpose, except for there being a truly personal, real, all-powerful, all-knowing creator God. Not like the Roman gods and the Greek gods and the pagan gods in the Old Testament. Not just um, uh, an old bearded man sitting on a throne in the clouds, but a God who is spirit, meaning not physical, not, not tethered, not tied to that which we see, because if he was, he would be a part of it and not above it, not the creator of it. God is spirit, and, and he cannot be understood or, or apprehended. But this is a premise of the Bible. It's a premise of creation that such a God exists. But not only that, he is a father, God the Father. Now, specifically, he's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What, what, what does this mean, <laughs> that God is a Father? Well, that's a relational term. And here we must talk about things like the Trinity. We need to talk about things like the uh, usia and the hypostasis of the Trinity, and those are fancy Greek words that really just mean the essence, the nature of God, and the personhood of God. God the Father implies a son, and of course we know um, that the son is there mentioned, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we say that God is the Father of Jesus Christ, what are we saying? <laughs> what are we saying there? Well, this is firstly a reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. That actually here, when you say God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you're saying something about Jesus. That Jesus Christ is fully God. In John 5.18, the, the Jews sought to stone Jesus. And it's because he was doing um, miracles on the Sabbath. But not only that, when he justified why he was doing 
work, which he wasn't really doing work on the Sabbath. The Pharisees con, uh, were condemning him for working on the Sabbath, but he was healing on the Sabbath. Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I am working. In other words, it's not like uh, God takes a break on Saturdays, so I don't take breaks on Saturdays. And then verse 18 says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So if you ever hear that claim that Jesus never claimed to be God, he absolutely did. This is just how they would phrase it then. You don't just, you wouldn't just say, I am equal with God. You would say, I and the Father are one, or my Father's working until now, and I am working. The Jews knew clearly that Jesus was making a claim to deity. It just, what, because he didn't say exactly, I am God, that he never made a claim to deity? It just, that's just not how they spoke. That's not how they thought through things. In their thinking, when you call someone your Father, it was to say that you are like in nature, the same as that one. Or in English, we would say, like father, like son. It's the same kind of idea. You are the rightful heir, the rightful inheritor. You are to be treated as a father with all the the rights and, and privileges of him. So the Jews themselves would say, we are children of Abraham. And what they meant by that was that everything Abraham was owed, their forefather so too they were owed from honor and respect to the promises and blessings that were promised to Abraham. And so here when Paul says that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying something about Jesus. He's affirming that Jesus is equal in his divine nature to God. And this has to do with Jesus being fully God and fully man. He is 100% God. Now, how can we reconcile that? Remember, all things, however you're going to try and figure this out in your head, it must lead to to the praise of his glory, that we do not want to diminish in any way God's glory when we answer this question. It is indeed a tough one, um, and uh, there's many churches that just would rather not deal with it. They're Unitarians and and whatever, but uh, I think the simplest way to understand this is to accept the testimony here without necessarily trying to figure out all the different nuances. But you always have to try. Every analogy is going to be a little bit imperfect, but uh, I think one of the easiest ways for me to imagine this is if you were to make a list of all the qualities of God, of deity, of the divine nature, you made a list of what that meant to be God. And there, of course, I mean, you know, we can use words like he is He's uh, just, he is, he is um, holy, he is loving. And really, those words, the depth of them, maybe we don't understand. But, you know, let's say we can make a list of all the things that define what God is. Jesus would check off all those boxes just as much as God the Father would check off all those boxes. They are of the same nature, substance, essence. And again, the Greek word, if you care, this is a big debate. Um, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of years ago, when they're arguing about the nature of Jesus, the Greek word is usia. They are of the same usia. That is substance, nature, or essence. 
This is affirmed so many times in so many ways. I would just give a few verses, uh, mainly from the New Testament, but I, the Old Testament affirms this as well. Um, you can jot these down or follow along quickly if you'd like. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There does, firstborn means the preeminent over the creation because he still had a human body, of course, but he is preeminent as, uh, as, as being the only pure, perfect, uh, holy one in human form. But he is the image of the invisible God. Philippians 2.6 says that he, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, that though he was fully God, he did not consider that it was something bad or wrong to do to say, but I will still come into this world as a baby. You know, the infinite, eternal God. Somehow, paradoxically, you know, in a way we can't fully understand, this infinite God came to us in the form of a baby and a child. So he, it talks about how he did not necessarily think that just because he's equal to to God, that he, he could not also, um, you know, the phrase there's emptied himself, kenosis, it, again, another hard doctrine, but somehow, some way, that infinite God had, you know, 10 little tiny fingers and 10 little tiny toes. Um, it's just uh, one of those things that you, you, you just accept. It's necessarily true. Um, Hebrews 1, chapter 3 the writer of Hebrews says similarly about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the New Testament clearly believes that Jesus is equal in essence and nature with God the Father. Jesus is fully divine, fully deity. If you made a list of all the attributes of what God is, Jesus would check all those boxes. What he added to himself was humanity, and that's not quite the focus of Ephesians here, at least not just yet, but he also added humanity to it, but that did not take away from his deity. All right. But God being the Father, going back to Ephesians, also means that there is some distinction between the Father and the Son. Well, they're both equally God, but you know, you're obviously have terms of distinction here to call one the Father, and by implication, then Jesus the Son. And sometimes this is referred to as the personhood of the Trinity, the Father and Son being distinct persons, or the Greek word, again, hypostasis. Uh, if you're, if you're uh, into the theological terms, and again, like there, there's fights in churches about these terms, so it's not a small thing. And I'm kind of joking when I say it, but I mean, there was uh, drag out fights in churches over these doctrines. But what does it mean that there's a distinction in the Godhead of persons, even though there's an equality in deity? Well, no analogy is perfect again, but think of it this way. Um, there is a definition of human, right? We could make a list 
and uh, have a definition of what constitutes a human being. And presumably, everyone here is human. We'd all fit that, that definition, right? We'd all be 100% human. We'd, we'd want to have a definition of humanity that would capture all of us humans in here. But we could come up with the definition of human. Every single one of us, and it's the very defining thing about us is that we're human, we would all be equally human according to this list of attributes and qualities. But that doesn't mean that you and I are the same person, does it? Even though we are all 100% equally fully human and the most basic thing about us is that we are human, it doesn't mean that we are identical people. So the Father and the Son, and then we get to the Holy Spirit in verse 13, won't today, but um, Christians believe in a Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, um, that these three are fully and fundamentally God. They meet that definition of deity. But there are three distinct persons with distinct roles, separate but completely unified in a way that all of us here are not, unfortunately, even though we're all human beings, which should make us more tight-knit and more in community um, because we're all human, but because of sin, what do we see? You see racism, you see all kinds of um, a warring between nations and countries, making the smallest distinctions about things that don't change our humanity. And so in a way, our, our fighting and us making uh, a big, um, you know, a lot of trouble about the differences of what skin color, where you were born, what kind of food you like to eat, what language you speak, things that do not affect your humanity in any way, we let those be cause for warring and fights. And that, in a, in a way, is another evidence of our sinful natures that humanity is so easily uh, falls into that. But no such disunity occurs within the Godhead. No such disunity occurs within the three who are one. And so we fall short of that as humanity. It's one of our sins. It's another way we know that we are sinners is we fall short of the unity that is in the Godhead. So the Son has different roles in the plan of salvation than the Father. The Spirit didn't die on the cross, the Holy Spirit. It was the Son. And it's not the Father that raised Jesus from the dead, but it's said that the Spirit is. The Father sent the Son. The Spirit inspired the Scriptures, regenerates our hearts. The Son is the one who died and reconciled sinners by His blood and became human. They are perfectly unified, completely 100%, the definition of deity, but in their roles, their functions, or you could call it their person, they are distinct. That is like my 10, 15-minute take on, on the Trinity, okay? There's a lot more that can be said, of course, but it just I don't want to assume anything. What anyone knows here, and we're starting a new book, so I figured I'd go kind of um, in on that a little bit if you're wondering why. But just we believe in the Trinity here at this church, a historic Orthodox doctrine, and we want to affirm that as much as we can because that trinity glorifies, is the one that is going to be glorified and the one that glorifies us. Now that brings us to the next phrase. 
Maybe we'll get through verse 3 today. The Lord Jesus Christ. In that cluster of words, you have some of the distinctions about Jesus as the second person of the Godhead. The word Lord is a reference to his absolute sovereignty, his control and rule over all things. Now, in the Old Testament, Yahweh, and that is the covenant name of God that the Israelites were supposed to address God with. It means like, I am, I am who I am. Um, In the Old Testament, Yahweh is Lord. So for Jesus to share this title of Lord is another way of saying Jesus is God. Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Distinct in person, same in nature. If the Father has that title, in other words, and the Son has that title, Lord, means they're equal. So Lord is a reference to his equalness with God, also reminding us that Jesus Christ is in charge. God is in charge of everything that happens. And it is this Lord God who says, you know, I see these these sinners who are languishing and broken in the mess that they've created. I want to save them got to understand that that is a very kind thing for a Lord to do, for the Lord to look upon anyone with pity, someone with that much power and control, to look at the weakest and the smallest and say, I'm going to help and save that one is a tremendous sign of the, the grace and love of God. Now, the word Jesus refers then exactly to that mission Jesus is the name that the angel told Mary to give the baby that she would bear in Luke chapter 1. You shall call his name Jesus. And the name itself means Yahweh saves. Jesus refers to why he came into the world and took on this form of a baby, took on true humanity. That he came not to condemn this world that because of our sin has gotten so messed up like we're talking about with the kids that because of Adam and everyone after Adam has just soaked this world in sin and we see the evidences of it all around us. I know we've got that very thin veneer of uh, smiles and things are okay. Look at our you know, cars and look at our clean streets. But you know, you talk to your neighbors, you talk to your friends and you get talking and you will see pretty quickly the evidences of sin. There's heartache, heartbreak. There are those who are suffering under very difficult situations and those who are just doing all kinds of foolish things to ruin their lives and the lives of others. It it doesn't take long for you to have a real serious discussion with anyone and know that that things are kind of messed up here. Well, Jesus, rather than condemn this world, he offered hope and a way to be right with God. His name means that all that is wrong in the world and with the world can be restored and redeemed and forgiven. That's what Jesus means. Jesus means that God was willing to stake the son's life to be given so that salvation could be freely offered to those who did not deserve it. Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is a a description, almost a title. It is not a last name, okay? Jesus' last name is not Christ. Just quickly, the word is a Greek word that means anointed one. 
An anointed one is a reference to someone who has been given a special mission or duty. In those days, um, you might pour oil on the head of a Caesar to say, you are now going to be charged with the, the rule of this empire, and they would anoint uh, the emperor. It's a practice that a lot of different cultures did. But um, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God spoke of a special person who would come, who would carry God's mission of redemption. And this one was to be called the anointed one, or in Hebrew, it's Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. I don't know why we didn't just, it would actually be probably more helpful if instead of Christ there, in English, we just translated it anointed one, the Lord Jesus anointed one, because it's more descriptive than Christ, <laughs> because we start to think, hey, Christ is just his last name or something. But it points to the special identity and purpose that God had for this very special, unique individual who would be man, but also God, be a servant and a slave, but also a king, it would be a lamb, but also a lion, it would be a sacrifice, but also living. The special one in the Old Testament prophesied the Messiah would be realized, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus anointed one, refers to the second person of the Trinity in his mission, in his purpose. Verse uh, 13, as I mentioned, we come and, and speak of the Holy Spirit. And between the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, we have what we call in Christianity the most, one of the most basic truths about what we believe, that God exists in a trinity. Now, I know we talk a lot about how that is paradoxical. And truth be told, whenever we speak of like infinite and eternal things, we're necessarily going to fall a little short. But hopefully, some of this discussion helps to understand a little bit our need, um, well, our understanding of deity being a three in one. One of the most important reasons for the Trinity is exactly this point that in the Godhead, there are relationships. That you have, yes, one definition of deity, but you have three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And because of that, you can have things like relationships, one to another. Um, let me explain that a little bit. Um, in Buddhism, I don't know if any of you have been exposed to Buddhism, some other religions, there's an idea that we are all one. That uh, not all sects of, I think, Buddhism believe this, but it's, it's a major tenet, at least in some versions, that everything is one. And I mean like we are literally just one thing. And the way you reach enlightenment, in the case of Buddhism at least, or some sects of Buddhism, is to understand that in fact there is no distinction between anything. That's how you reach enlightenment. That good is actually the same as evil. It's all one. That there's actually no differences between you and me, we are one. Everything, everyone, all of it is just one, okay? <laughs> the creation, I guess. Now, that might, in a way, I can, I can understand that. You know why? 
Because, you know, if you get real nitty-gritty about it, we're all made of the same stuff, right? We're all made of, of, of atoms and electrons and whatever they discover now smaller than atoms and electrons. Like, we are all made of that stuff. You know, the, the sun and the moon and the stars made of atoms, right? Electricity and, and everything, the, the trees out there, atoms, we're all atoms. So I can almost see, like, if you were a Buddhist and, you, you know, as the, you know, scientific revolution goes on, you know, oh, see, look, you know, we are actually just one thing made of one thing. But the problem is, are there not truly distinctions? Here's one. I know we're getting a little bit into apologetics. I hope this uh, stretches you a little bit. Um, but, but think about this. Um, is zero one? And is one two? Is two three? Now, does zero, is, is the concept of zero and one, is that made up of atoms or molecules or electrons or anything? No, it's an idea, right? Is zero the same as one? Is one the same as two? No. And do they even have any kind of like substance like this podium or, you know, my, my jacket? No. I mean, so we can say that truly there are distinctions in this creation because actually math uh, is a huge problem because it just doesn't depend on physical realities or atoms. In fact, you know what math is fundamentally? Relationships. I don't know if any of you are, are math. I'm, I'm not a math whiz, by the way, or anything close to it. But math really is just relationships between numbers. Numbers which you don't have to physically have represented anywhere. Math is just relationships. Where did math come from? If it's all it is is relationships, well, I, I would argue that you don't get that you don't get math if everything is just one and the same. Like, I would say Buddhism can't account, at least that kind of Buddhism can't account for math fundamentally. Because in Buddhism, if all is one, where did, where's two? Where's three? Where's zero? But in the Trinity, in the very nature of God, which again, God, not just some old man sitting on the throne, but God, the very creator, the, the reason for this existence, God himself exists in relationship within itself. And so you can have relationships between anything, whether numbers or people. I know if that's a little bit heady for you, um, you know, you come and ask me after, I'll try to explain it more, but I think this is important because I do want to stretch our understanding of God because one of the things, if really the goal is the praise of his glory, it's about his glory, then actually our, the pursuit of our life is to see God's glory as more and more glorious. So I don't want God to be small in my mind. I want him to be very, very big. And things like this at least help me think, wow, God is really, really just mind-blowingly you know, mind-stretchingly big, okay? Now, in the Godhead, you have relationships. The Father to the Son, the Son to the Spirit, the Father to the Spirit just points to the very inherent nature in creation of unique 
things that are one, but also distinct. We are all human beings in this room, and yet not identical. All things are made of, truly, of atoms and electrons, and yet this thing is not the same as this thing. There is, then, more importantly, within this relationship, we can now make sense of concepts like love. Love needs at least two distinct parties to exist. Now, I was thinking, do we need to get into a big thing about loving yourself and all this stuff? Well, that's not truly love. It's not. Loving yourself is not truly love. You need two, <laughs> at least, for a concept like love to exist. How can love exist if there's only one? Jesus says numerous times. In fact, just after um, that passage in John 5, 17, where the Pharisees were angry at Jesus because he said that he and the Father are one, just a few verses later, Jesus starts talking about how the Father loves the Son. When we say God is love, we mean that even within the Trinitarian, Trinitarian Godhead, there's always been love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's an intrinsic part of God's nature. There must be relationship in it. For God to be loved, there needs to be people, objects, and subjects of love. And in the Christian theology, we can have that. We can say, yeah, it, we believe that, I know it's hard to understand, believe that there's a Trinitarian God, God Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and there was love even before anything was created or made. God is love. Because there is love, relationship within the Godhead. So, that will become important because the very next things that will happen in the verses to come, it will be about how did his love work itself out outside of the Godhead? Why would God even bring love outside of this, uh, uh, of this Trinitarian God? Why make anything? Well, to the praise of his glory and grace so that there can be um, people that can experience and enjoy God's love. There is a God who shares his glory. He has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So it's not just that he is blessed. It's not just he's this glorious God. Within self-contained is, is love and relationship. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. One of the most shocking things about God is that the blessed God blesses others. He shares it. I mean, I, I mean I, I'm not trying to make too much commentary, but there are a lot of billionaires out there, um, and that's a lot of power and influence to exert. And I know it's very easy for us to say, well, those guys should you know, share at least some of that or, or help humanity somehow, and, you know, some of them, I, I suppose, do. And I, I think instead of judging, judging billionaires, I, I think you just got to ask yourself, well, if you were in those shoes, you know, what would you do? Now, everyone who's not a billionaire would say, oh, yeah, I'd easily just, you know, give that up. I'd be so philanthropic. But I don't know. <laughs> I would not want to be tempted with billions of dollars, just knowing my own sinful heart. But here is God, who's God, right? 
truly begs thought, the source of all things. He, he, in him is the very nature of existence. I mean, we should be absolutely humbled and almost think this is absurd to think about God. To think that this God would share, open up that relationship within the Trinity to us, it's an incredible thought. I mean, either we believe that, and that is a mind-altering, altering, worldview-shaping thought, or you're just here following another religion, and you could just kind of interchange any God into, the, into your situation. If you truly believe that this kind of great, eternal, infinite, mind-blowing God, the, 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 the reason, the basis for all of existence is willing to include you in to his glory and his deity, we should want for nothing else. I, I, I just, w- w- anything that happens to us, <laughs> it, it should just seem like this, the smallest pebble dropped into the ocean because I am in a relationship with God, the Father. So why does it annoy me so much when my kids don't listen or when the car doesn't start or, you know, the, 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 the paycheck you know, didn't come through on time or whatever it is? I mean, we are talking about a relationship with the God who created everything. He, he is blessed and he blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? I don't think I think enough about that. Or else I would think a lot differently about how I deal with people and how I deal with life. This God, and the problem is that exactly the situation with Adam and Eve is they were in that, more than anyone, that situation of knowing God's creation, his power, his wisdom, his might, his glory. Our forebears were there in the midst of a very good creation and they still shunned that relationship with God in order to try and be God. That is true folly. If you have a big enough view of God, you understand. You see, if God is just like your dad, if God is just a glorified superhero human being and you kind of disappointed him or you kind of went against him, no big deal. Why did Adam and Eve get such a, a strong punishment for their sin? But if God is the very basis for this existence, made this a beautiful creation just for you, you are good, you are perfect there's nothing wrong with you and you still said i still would rather be god than you that is a cosmic crime that is cosmic treason as one theologian puts it it's absolute selfishness and it is of course completely impossible for us to be god and yet there they were adam and eve i want to be like God. And there we are every single day. Things are not going my way. I'm going to 
I'm going to sin in my heart because someone's sinning against me. I'm going to grumble and complain. I'm going to treat people poorly. I'm going to treat myself poorly. The created thing here, us, cannot be the creator. And the penalty for that kind of cosmic treason is eternal separation and condemnation from God rightly. Or else we're not really seeing God as God and we're not seeing how wicked and awful it is for Adam and Eve and for us to sin against him. That's why it's shocking to read here that this blessed God, instead of condemning us, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, the only God can make a way. Only God can fix this. How dare you have a religion where you're going to possibly bridge that gap between you and God by doing what? Giving enough money? Doing enough, you know, charity work? Showing up an hour and a half on Sunday that that is going to be good enough to make you right with God after the cosmic treason that we commit every day going about our lives, not, not remembering him, not thanking him, not thinking of him? You think that you're going to bribe God with like, 50 cent gifts at the dollar gift store? Children are appeased by that. And do you think God is a child? That he will take your good works and say, oh, I guess, I guess you, you know, an hour and a half is pretty good a week, so yeah, I guess you can be right with me. When we are there committing cosmic treason against him? No. The only way to fix the situation is God himself is good, loving, kind, and merciful, and if he makes a way so that paradise that was lost can be restored. And only in Christ, then, has this been made possible, that he, just as we've been saying, in the, in the Trinity, the Father told the Son, Son, you are going to be the one to go, take on human form, and live an actually perfect life that they should have lived. And then rather than stand there and condemn everybody, what you're going to do is be crucified, killed, murdered, as if you were the sinner that they are. And what I will do as the Father is I will be willing in this grand act of really cosmic injustice, in a way, in a way, is I will let you stand as a substitute for these sinners. And I will accept your righteousness on the account of their unrighteousness. And I will let them have your place as my children. And then the Spirit is going to come, and for those who believe in this gospel message and this good news, the Spirit, you will go and you will change their hearts. You'll take out the heart of stone that rebels against God. you put in a heart of flesh so that they will serve and honor me and have a relationship with me. Only in Christ, faithfully trusting, believing that he reconciled us to God through his own human life, that he literally was crucified on a cross, paid the penalty for our sin, redeemed us. Only in believing in that message can we be blessed. God, who is the definition of blessed, the only good, he wants to share that goodness and greatness and glory with those who are so, so undeserving of it. He holds nothing back. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? That raises the question, why does it seem like we lack so much that people are suffering and dying? Even Christians who put their faith in Christ seem to suffer in so many ignoble ways. Well, that's why Paul has to say every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, this creation is cursed. The world is full of sin and evil. What has to come through us or to us in Christ isn't money or treasure or food from heaven or a nice acre or two of land in a big house or fame and popularity. What God says in saying that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is to say that Jesus is the greatest treasure. Jesus is the bread of life from heaven. Jesus prepares a place for us, mansions in glory, and Jesus will give us crowns and acknowledgement and glory when this short life is over. In other words, we misunderstand our greatest need if we think that blessing means material and earthly things and that that's what we need most in life. It's not that they're sinful or wrong to, to possess, but you can't appreciate who Jesus is and what God has done if you don't see that the greatest thing wrong with your life is you. And you can't fix that, but God can. We don't, we don't need to, and Ephesians is gonna be so clear about this, try to earn our place back to God. We can have it simply by laying down what we think we have to, to give to God and say, instead, all I need is Jesus. This morning, if you have not put faith in Jesus, consider, what is your explanation for all of this? Where did you get that from? Why do you think that way? And if you find your explanation starting to fall short, consider what the Bible says about the meaning purpose of your life and come to faith in Jesus. If you're a Christian this morning, well, I, I hope that some of this, I know it might be a little bit of rehash as far as the Trinity and things like that, but I hope, I always hope that every Sunday our view of God is broadened just a little bit because when we, he's, he's broadened more in our minds, he gets more glory because he's bigger. <laughs> you know, it's, it's who he is gets bigger and we, we got more to praise him for. So I hope that in some ways, you, your, your vision of God has been expanded a little bit today. Heavenly Father, in all these things, we pray for your glory, that in any stumblings or failings of mine, that somehow it's a good, it's just a hope to know that the answer is that you are still fulfilling your purposes. You still will be glorified, um, Lord, even if, um, if I don't particularly like when I'm a stumbling block uh, to that or when I'm not exactly acknowledging that, just to know that all things are going to work out for your glory. What a great hope. What a fixture upon which to set my eyes. Lord, what a bright star to guide our winding paths when we can think, God, you are going to glorify yourself. And the greatest gift of all to us is that you'd share that glory um, with, with undeserving sinners. And we thank you that this is possible in Christ. So it's in his name we pray. Amen.